At the Canaan Church, our mission is bringing people to Christ and helping every person to become a mature disciple in Christ. Canaan Christian Church, where people dare to dream. studying from a wonderful book in the Bible, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament records. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets, but he's a minor prophet with a major uh, message. I want you to look today at Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 3, and uh, I'm going to read all 10 verses so that you can really get the context of what God is saying to us in this, in this word today. Zechariah chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Here, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes, Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of, the, of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen. The book of Zechariah is an Old Testament book that has serious spiritual implications and ramifications for us understanding who we are as the people of God and what God has done in our lives as it relates to the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. You and I today who claim to be Christians, you and I today who claim to have been changed by God through the grace uh, given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We really need to celebrate and thank God for what he has done for us. I said we really need to celebrate and thank God for what he has done for us. Because being a Christian has significance. 
I'm not talking about being a religious person. I'm not talking about just being a church person, but I'm talking about being a Christian, a man, a woman who has come to know God for yourself, a man or an, and a woman who has come into a personal relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And you can declare that your life has been changed. And now that you're living for a vision, you're living for a cause that is greater than yourself. The joy of being a Christian is that now I am living my life for God. I'm living my life to please him that I am living a life where I'm seeking to be molded and shaped according to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God has given me the understanding, he's given me the revelation and the insight of the kingdom of God. So that as an individual Christian and collectively as a church family, we represent God and we also represent the kingdom of God in the earth realm. Let me say that again, that we represent God and we represent the kingdom of God in the earth realm. The Bible speaks of us as Christians as ambassadors of Christ and that it is as though God was making his appeal to the world through us. And then we have been given the mandate, we have been given the mission, we have been given the charge to go throughout all the world and make disciples of every nation. When you understand what that means in terms of your salvation, you understand that you have been given the honor and the privilege to be a participant in the move of God in the world. Am I talking to anybody who believes that God is real? Amen. Yes, he's real. He's not something, someone that somebody else made up. He is real. And not only is God real, but God has a will that is being worked out in the world. The kingdom of God is being advanced in the world. And as people who are saved, it is not simply that we are watching the plan of God. It's not simply that we are observing the unfolding of the kingdom of God, but we have the honor and the privilege to participate in the unfolding of God's kingdom in the world. This is where the book of Zechariah becomes pivotal for our Christian growth because the book of Zechariah is a book that speaks to us about the kingdom in terms of its now implications as well as the not yet implications because the kingdom of God is something that is both present and it is a hope to come. The kingdom of God has existential value. That means that God is doing something right now on this Wednesday morning, on September the 28th, right now. There's a right now aspect of the kingdom of God. That's what I mean when I say it's existential. 
And then yet the kingdom is eschatological. Eschatological means it is something that is yet to come. It is a hope that's going to be realized. One day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So as we study the book of Zechariah, we understand that Zechariah and Haggai were what we would refer to as post-exilic prophets. That is, that they prophesied to a remnant of people who were a part of the nation of Israel who had been allowed to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple uh, when Darius was the king of Persia. Uh, the Persian Empire under the leadership of Cyrus had conquered Babylon. And so now that Persia is in charge and in control, there is a remnant, a group of people who are being allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. The prophet Jeremiah had told Israel that when they went into captivity, Jeremiah had told Israel that you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. But at the end of 70 years, God is going to allow you to come back to the holy city. Jeremiah says, God says, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a hope and a future. You ought to be glad today that God's last word is never a word of judgment. His last word is always a word of grace. And we can praise God that he always has a remnant, that God never leaves himself without a witness, and that sometimes it is in the scheme of things that even if God has to chastise us, even if God has to whip us, even if God has to correct us, even if God has to allow us to be exposed and sometimes allow us to go through painful situations and suffering circumstances, he only allows it to happen according to his providential will in order to bring us back into alignment because at the end of the day, his will is going to be worked out. And so now this, this remnant is being allowed to come back to Jerusalem. It happened when Zerubbabel was the governor and when Joshua would serve as the high priest. Now, as they come back to Jerusalem, they're going to have an awesome challenge to rebuild the temple and an awesome challenge to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem. Now, the book of Zechariah has two parts. On one hand, the book of Zechariah is speaking to us historically, simply about the context of what took place in Jerusalem when this remnant came back to the holy city. 
On the other hand, the book of Zechariah is speaking to us about a coming Messiah. It is speaking to us about what God is going to do as the kingdom of God is going to be realized in decades and years uh, to come. So that when you study the Bible, there's a sense in which we study the Bible, Ron, and we talk about progressive revelation. Progressive revelation means that God reveals himself to humankind as we have the capacity to receive what God is speaking into our lives. So that the God who is the God of covenant, when you start with the book of Genesis and you can start with Noah and then the covenant with Abraham and then the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchal fathers, the covenant with Israel as a nation and with Moses, the covenant with David, you can see that there is is an unfolding revelation that is moving through scriptures like a scarlet thread and it goes on into the New Testament with the birth of Jesus Christ and then the birthing of the church and then the epistles that speaks to us about how we are to operate as the people of God in the world in which we live. The revelation has to do with the kingdom of God and it's important, it is necessary for us to understand the movement of the kingdom of God. We just don't go to church on the weekends to have a good time. We don't go to church just to be emotionally tickled. We come to church because we are in covenant with God and with one another to carry out the purposes of God in the world. And the question is how does God do it with you and I? And so when we look at the book of Zechariah, God gives us a wonderful revelation to understand how he's working it out. The prophet Zechariah has eight dreams in one night. Eight dreams in one night. That had to be some kind of a night. But all eight dreams are related. All eight dreams are connected. Are you listening to me? He had how many? Eight. But all eight are what connected. All eight are related to one another. So it is in the combination of all eight dreams that you really have one major revelation. Let me say it again. There's eight dreams, but all eight dreams are related. They're all connected, and they then constitute one major revelation. Now, today, as we look at chapter 3 in Zechariah, we're now looking at the fourth dream or the fourth vision. Now, the first three dreams or the first three visions were speaking uh, to Israel in terms of a community. The first three dreams or the first three visions were speaking to Israel in terms of community. But when you get to the fourth vision and the fifth vision, there is a shift because the fourth vision and the fifth vision move from the dreams speaking of a community to the dreams speaking of leadership, the dreams speaking of two significant people. In the fourth dream, the dream is talking about Joshua, the high priest. 
In the fifth dream, it's going to talk about Zerubbabel, who will serve as governor. But then when you get past the fifth dream and you get to the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth, the sixth, seventh, and eighth visions or dreams is going to go back and again speak to Israel about community. Let me say it to you again. Dream one, two, and three. Those dreams speak to Israel about community. Then there is a shift, and dreams four and five shift to speak about leadership or two significant persons, those persons being Joshua the high priest and then Zerubbabel who will serve as governor. When you get to dreams six, seven, and eight, it's going back to community. So now, when we understand then that the book of Zechariah is speaking to us on two levels. On one level, it is talking about historically what God was doing with a people, the nation of Israel, uh, when a remnant was allowed to come back to the holy city of Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. But on a higher level, now we understand that the book of Zechariah is talking to us about the fulfillment of the kingdom, and the kingdom is going to be fulfilled because of the work of the Messiah, the blessing of the Messiah, that what God has done for us and is still doing for us through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, with, with the, the Jerusalem being rebuilt, the city, and with the temple being rebuilt and its ministry restored, that means that Joshua, the high priest, is going to be the reestablishment of the Levitical priesthood. And Zerubbabel is going to be a key leader in giving leadership towards the rebuilding of the holy city of Jerusalem. The Levitical priesthood is going to be reestablished through Joshua, the high priest. Now you understand that the Levitical priesthood was a serious matter because it spoke of Israel's relationship with God. It was God who said to Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle. And I want you to build the tabernacle so that I can teach Israel how to worship me. I want to teach Israel how they are to relate to me as a holy God. God says, now, Moses, I want Israel to understand that they were in captivity, but they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promise that I gave Abraham, I purposed to keep my word because God had told Abraham that his descendants were going to go into captivity. They would be there for 400 years, but I will deliver them from Egypt.
So God sends Moses down to Egypt to tell Pharaoh that the brickyard is under new management, that you don't have the power that you thought you had because you had perceived power, but you ain't got realized power. And then he has to tell Moses to tell Israel, you don't need to be comfortable being slaves because you were never intended to stay in bondage because you are my people. And so now Israel gets delivered out of uh, bondage in Egypt and they come into this covenant relationship with God. But they got to grow in their knowledge of understanding how do we relate to God. So God is going to establish the tabernacle to teach them how to relate to him and how to worship him. The tabernacle is going to have an outer court is going to have the holy place and then it's going to have the place called the holy of holies behind the veil. The tabernacle was structured with meaning because it was to help Israel understand how they were to relate to him. God is the holy other, so says the prophet Isaiah. God in his holiness, he is the sovereign creator of the world and in his sovereignty, God is holy, he is just and he is righteous. And because he's holy, he's just and he's righteous, then you just can't waltz up into his company just any kind of way. The God who is just, holy, and righteous is also the God who then operates in a manner that he's also the God of judgment and sometimes the God of wrath because of his righteousness. But then he's also the God who is loving, who is gracious, who is kind, and who is merciful. He's the God who is eternal. He has no beginning, no ending of days. He is the God who is immutable. He does not change. He's the God who's omnipotent. He's got all power. He's omniscient. He's everywhere. He knows all things and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. So God says to Israel, I'm not going to be no distant lover. I am holy, so I'm transcendent. I am above you but I'm imminent because I am with you and the thing that we got to learn about worship even today is that when we come to church to worship what we're seeking to do beloved every Sunday even right now is every time we gather whether it's Wednesday for Bible study or Sunday morning worship Every time we gather, our goal is to get behind the veil into the holy of holies. That's why it is important for us to have order to worship. That's why it's good to have a liturgical order. The liturgical order is to get you from the outer court to behind the veil. That's why it takes more to worship than just physically showing up. Because you can be physically in the building and still not worship God. Because the Bible says God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So when I leave my house and come to church to worship, I have to bring my mind. 
I don't leave my mind at home. I don't leave my mind in the car. I bring my mind into the sanctuary with me to worship. I also bring my heart because my heart represents my will. You see, because I'm making a choice about what I'm doing. Ain't nobody made me come to church. I came because it was my choice. It's my will. So I bring my mind. I bring my will. But also within that, I'm bringing also my emotions. Because you see, the word soul is really based on the word psyche. So when we talk about a soul, my soul constitutes my mind and my will and my emotions. Are you still with me? So I have to bring into worship my mind. I got to bring my heart. I got to bring my will. I got to bring my emotions. I'm not going to sit up in here like Alice in Wonderland, like I don't know where I am. I'm not going to sit here like a knot on a log, you know. Here I am teaching this word right now with such clarity and with such power. Even if I can't see your smile, you ought to be smiling. And every now and then you ought to raise your hand and say, teach, pastor, teach. You know what I'm saying? But you ought to make some kind of sign, some kind of response, you know? So I'm bringing my emotions. But then I have to also bring my spirit because it's not my mind that informs my spirit, it's my spirit that informs my mind. It is not my body that heals the spirit, it's the spirit that heals the body. It is not my emotions that gives directs to the spirit, but it's the spirit of God that directs my spirit, that enables my spirit then to direct uh, the order of my life. You see, so all of that is brought into the worship experience. So I'm gonna move from the outer court and then I'm going to make my way into the holy place and then I'm going to make my way behind the veil into the holy of holies. Are you still with me right now? I'm going somewhere. I got to lay some groundwork today. I got to do some digging up in here today, Sister Chris. Oh, yes. And so I'm trying to make my way to the Holy of Holies. And that's why, you see, uh, some people, they just miss worship. They miss it all together. We in here worshiping and the choir sings. I'm preaching. I'm teaching, you know, and then the person beside you wants to start having a conversation, want to chit-chat with you. You all look at them and say, have you lost your ever living mind you want to chit chat with me and I'm trying to hear from God you better leave me alone I mean you sitting up in here I'm teaching the choir singing and you texting somebody oh God have mercy on your soul yes I, you, you, to, to worship God you got to have your mind on him if you're going to worship are you still with me all right, because you're trying to get behind the veil. And if you can get behind the veil, that means you can leave church differently than the way you came in. And I'm just going to drop this on you. I ain't charging nothing extra for what I'm about to say. But uh, you ought to know that uh, you ain't doing God a favor showing up. Mm -mm. He's got angels to praise him 24-7, amen, perpetually. And so you ain't doing God a favor. And then I'm going to give you something else. I ain't charging you. This is free. But to be so casual about it. Well, I was at church last Sunday. I don't think I'm going to make it this Sunday. I got a few more things I need to do. If you understand 
understood what it really meant to have the joy of your salvation, and if you understood what it meant to be saved, you wouldn't be so casual about Jesus. You would be thanking God, there ain't a Sunday coming that I plan to miss church. Ain't a Bible study gonna go by that I'm not there. Because I understand that I live and move and have my very being in him. That's why the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Oh, stay with me because I'm going somewhere with what I'm talking about. I said in worship we go from the outer court to the holy place and then behind the veil into the holy of holies. I'm saying to you that Joshua who is now going to be the high priest and who's going to minister to this remnant who's left Babylon and came back where? To Jerusalem. So now what is taking place? The Levitical priesthood is being reinstituted, is being reestablished. Why was that critical? It was critical because once a year they had what was called what? The Day of Atonement. What happened on the Day of Atonement? The high priest would take the blood of an unblemished lamb. He would go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and there he would make a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people of God for, the, for their sins. Now, God was so particular about the ministry of the tabernacle that he gave Moses not only instructions of how the tabernacle was to be built itself, but he also gave Moses instructions on all of the articles and the instruments that would go in the tabernacle. He also gave instructions on how the priests were to cleanse themselves in preparation for making the sacrifice. The high priest had to go through a particular order of cleansing. There were certain garments that they had to wear. And the high priest had on a robe, a garment, and it had on the, on the chest 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel that covered his chest over his heart. He also had 12 stones on both of the shoulder pads representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there was a turban that he wore that was a part of his dress as he would minister and serve the people of God and represent them uh, 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 before God as he made the sacrifice on their behalf. Now, <clears throat> the people had to also present themselves before God in a certain way. So the people had to bring a sacrifice that they made uh, in the outer court as in preparation for what would take place in the holy place. But the people never got to go behind the veil. Only the high priest went there, and he only went once a year. The people had to prepare themselves, that is, cleansing, purification. But the high priest had to cleanse himself and purification. Are you still with me? Joshua, the high priest, who's now going to represent and reinstitute the ministry of the Levitical priesthood, 
there's a problem here. Because in the vision that Zechariah has, Joshua, the high priest, stands before the angel of the Lord and Satan stands at his right hand to oppose him. Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, is not, it's like a courtroom scene. And the angel of the Lord is representing God. Joshua, the high priest, is the one who's being brought, as it were, before the judge. And Satan is the prosecuting attorney who is bringing charges against Joshua to say that he's unfit, that he's unclean, and he ain't fit to serve as high priest and then represent the people before God. And Joshua's situation is of such that Satan doesn't have to build a case. He don't need no witnesses to come. He don't need to say Article A, Article B, I want to present this to the judge. Because if you look uh, at verse 3, it's very clear Joshua, the high priest, was clothed with filthy garments. The accuser ain't got to search for something to bring the accusation. It's clear that Joshua, the high priest, in and of himself, ain't fit to serve in the office. In and of himself, he, 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 he doesn't have a righteousness that allows him to come before God on behalf of the people. Because his life is marked by sin, marked by failure. This issue of his being unclean, being dressed in filthy garments, Brother Mills, it ain't about some particular moral failure. It, it, it ain't about something that taints him because of what he didn't do that God told him to do. His, his, his being unclean ain't about his doing something that God commanded him not to do. It's, it's, it's not some one or two or three particular things that he has done that makes him unclean. He's being dressed in this vision. He's, he's dressed with filthy garments. His being dressed with filthy garments just has to do with the fact that as a person created in the image and likeness of God, born of a woman, that his life is unfit in and of himself to serve in that capacity because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The issue is that David was correct. I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. When I came out of my mother's womb, 
I was born with a propensity and a proclivity to do that which would not be pleasing in God's sight. And so the question, the dilemma is then how is Joshua the high priest how then is he going to reestablish the Levitical priesthood? How is he going to serve as a representative of the people of God before God and then serve as a representative of God to the people? He needs cleansing. He needs to be transformed. He needs to be repositioned, but his repositioning is not something he can work out on his own. His cleansing is not something he can provide for himself. And so when Satan wants to bring the accusation, then we are told uh, that the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I like that. I, I don't know how you pray. Sometimes when I pray and I say, God, protect me from the enemy and protect me from every demon and unclean spirit. But sometimes I just come right out and say, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Because it's one thing for me to rebuke you. But it's, a, it's another thing when I ask the Lord to rebuke you. Because God can put Satan in his place. And God can get Satan off of you. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. God says to Satan, the accuser, whether you recognize it or not, Jerusalem belongs to me. And while they have been in captivity, I am going to reestablish Jerusalem because these are my chosen people and I love them, I care about them, and I'm going to make them fit. Yet Joshua in and of himself, he's got on dirty garments in and of himself. He doesn't have anything to offer me, but I'm rebuilding my temple. So he's going to serve as the high priest and reestablish the Levitical priesthood because I'm going to do for him what he can't do for himself because I'm going to cleanse him. Look, 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 look at what, look at what we're told in verse four. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. This is what Zechariah sees in the vision. Joshua had the high priest had on dirty garments, filthy garments, but they're told, take the filthy garments from him. And I said to him, and, and, and to him he said, see, I have remo removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. God can change your life. God can clean you up. God can make you new.
God can give you a tomorrow. God can give you a new lease on life. It's called grace. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him. Yeah, put the clothes on him. And, and, and then when you get to verse six and going down to verse six and seven, uh, now the vision speaks of how Joshua the high priest and the other persons who will serve in the Levitical priesthood among those who have come back to Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the city and the reestablishment of the temple, how they're gonna serve in this office of ministering to the people on behalf of God. How they're gonna serve in a capacity that requires holiness a capacity that calls for consecration and commitment, a capacity that calls for devotion and dedication. And, and Joshua the high priest is gonna be in this position now, not because of what he has to offer God, but because of what God has to offer him. Amen. Now, for the sake of time, I can't turn to these scriptures, but let, let me make reference to it. Then when we go from Zechariah to the New Testament to the book of Romans, Paul speaks to us about what God has done for you and I in terms of bringing us into a right relationship with him because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. When we talk about our salvation, brothers and sisters, and those of you who are joined with me virtually, I'm again so glad to have you with me, is that our salvation involves justification. It involves sanctification. And it involves glorification. Justification means that God justifies us. God declares us righteous. You and I are not saved because of our goodness. We're saved by the grace of God. You and I have never had anything that we could bring to God that would make us deserving of being in a right relationship with God. We have no righteousness to bring to God because the Bible says all of our righteousness is like filthy garments in his sight. So we are saved by the finished work of Christ on the cross. We are saved by grace and grace alone. That God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So in Romans chapter 5, Paul says, but God demonstrated his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when it comes to our lives, morally, spiritually, we was just as unsaved as unsaved can be. We were just as wrong as two left shoes. We were just as low down as low down can get. But God met you at ground zero and saved you. When I found the Lord, Pastor, you didn't find him, he found you. God wasn't lost, you were lost. And he met you where you were at, but he wouldn't leave you where he found you. So justification means God declares us righteous. 
He declares it. When did he declare you righteous? The very day, the very moment that you confessed your hope in Jesus Christ. That day, that moment, God declared you righteous. So how does the Bible speak of you? The Bible calls you saints. Now, if I told you to turn to the person beside you and tell them, I'm saint so-and-so, you'd be so uncomfortable. In fact, some of y'all wouldn't even do it. And the reason you wouldn't do it is because in your mind, you still thinking it's predicated on something that you got to do or something that you're going to bring to God. God calls you a saint not because you're so good. He calls you a saint because the word saint is really going to be related to the word sanctification, which means you've been set apart. And you have been set apart. And you have been changed. Now, are you perfect? No. You ain't perfect today. You ain't going to be perfect tomorrow. But you ought to be in process. I've been changed, I'm being changed, I'm going to be changed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's justification. But the grace that saves me is the grace that sustains me, and it is the grace that keeps helping me to keep growing and live a victorious life. Amen. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul says, we reckon that we have died with Christ and that we have also been raised with him. So if you reckon, if you come to the conclusion, if you resolve spiritually that I've died to the old way of life and I've been raised to walk in the newness of life, then I can't keep living with a mindset that makes me comfortable with sin. So if I fall, I ain't going to stay down. I got to get up. And because I know God has touched my life, I'm determined by the power of the Holy Ghost to keep moving forward in him. Romans, you, did you not know you in the Bible? Oh yeah, your whole obituary is in the Bible. Your whole autobiography of your life is in the Bible. It's Romans chapter six, seven, and eight. That's your life. Chapter six, God had to justify me and then starts working on sanctifying me. Romans chapter seven, even after I've been saved, I struggle. Romans chapter 8, but God helps me to get through my struggle because the Holy Spirit that now lives in me helps me to overcome me because I can't handle my own self. Now that's your life and that's my life. And the question is how can a people who have disobeyed God, how can a people who have failed God, now spend time with God, be in the company of God, and serve God. And this is where the messianic aspect of Zechariah comes to the forefront. Look at verse 8. Look at what well, we'll just start. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. I'm reading from the New King James translation, and the word branch is all in capital letters. Is that the way it is in your Bible? Now, that word branch is talking about who? Jesus. 
That word branch is talking about who? The Messiah is talking about who? Come on, don't be afraid to call his name Jesus. The word branch is talking about who? Jesus. Talk to me, somebody. The word branch is talking about who? Jesus. Jesus is a prophetic word. It is a vision of the coming Messiah. I told you that the kingdom, in one sense, is talking about that which is happening now and that which is going to come to pass. So when Zechariah is having this dream and as he's leading Israel in this remnant and rebuilding the, 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 the city of Jerusalem and the temple, he says to, to them, he says, in my dream I see Joshua the high priest and he had on dirty garments, but God rebukes the accuser and then the dirty garments are taken off of him. God puts him in new clean garments and then helps him to understand that you will serve in the role as the high priest and the re uh, uh, establishment of the Levitical priesthood and those who serve with you but you're going to do it because I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you worthy in and of yourself. You ain't worthy but I'm going to make you worthy because I need Israel to understand the spiritual ramifications of her relationship with me. The day of atonement is still going to be important because the day of atonement and the service that takes place in the tabernacle has future implications because every time you do it is as a shadow of something greater to come because one day uh, in this vision that Zechariah receives God is telling Zechariah because I'm going to send the branch the branch is the one that's going to come from the root of Jesse he's the one that's coming up through the lineage of David and so one day I'm going to send the branch into the world I'm going to send the king who comes from the lineage of David he will be the king that will always sit on the throne and this branch is going to do for the world what the world can't do for itself so that's why in the vision it says and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day in one day Jesus fixed it did he not yeah on one day one Friday he went to a hill called Calvary out there on an old rugged cross he did something he laid down his life he died that we might have life and have it more abundantly the high priest would take the blood of an unblemished lamb he would go behind the veil sprinkle that blood on the on the mercy seat it was a symbol that God had forgiven Israel for their sins and then a scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness as a symbol that their sins had been taken away but every time they did it on the day of an atonement it was speaking of something that was going to happen one day that would not be from a lamb that they brought in but Jesus himself would be the Passover lamb. He did not take the blood of a lamb but he took his own blood and then went behind the veil and there offered it to God the Father as payment for our salvation. The hymn writer said there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt to stains. The hymn writer said Jesus paid it all all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed me white as snow and so now today I stand before you as your pastor. I stand before 
before you to represent God, to minister to you on behalf of God, and then to represent you back to God. But I don't stand before you teaching this word today because I have a righteousness of my own. I don't teach this word because I'm perfect. I don't teach this word because I'm so good, but I teach because of the grace of God. Oh, Jesus, I teach because God keeps looking beyond my faults and he recognizes my need. I don't know about you. I'm glad I'm saved. I thank God for Jesus because he's the one who has made a difference and then one day the kingdom of God will be fully realized and we will see him for ourselves. I don't know what you're going to tell him on that getting up morning, but I'm going to tell the Lord, thank you for my salvation. Thank you for salvation so rich and so free. The answer, the answer to how sinful people can relate to a holy God, the answer is nothing but the grace of God. The people represent the church no matter where we are. So stay connected and reach others as we grow in Christ.